is Drew Ray, and this is episode 56 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Today, the scary thing I'm going to discuss is death inside tunnels. Last week, my family and I were driving through the Clem Jones Tunnel. It's a five-kilometre double-bore roadway that goes right under the Brisbane River, and it's quite an impressive driving experience. My daughter Dorothy, when she realised that we were under the river, asked if this sort of tunnel ever got filled with water. I think the way she put it was something like, if we're right under the river, is there any chance we're going to end up actually underwater? My normal response to a question like that is to say that it could happen, but isn't very likely. I might then tell a story about a time that it has happened. Hey, don't judge me. In 20 years time, when you're driving over a bridge Dorothy designed, do you want her to have grown up with stories about monsters and fairies, or about the Tacoma Narrows and Westgate Bridge collapses? In this case, though, I was stumped. I couldn't actually think of any examples of under-river tunnel disasters. Now, I pride myself on being pretty disaster literate, so since then I've been searching further. In somewhat of a rarity for disaster cast, we're going to talk about a type of accident that, as far as I can tell, has never actually happened, and see if we can work out why. There are three main ways of building underwater tunnels. The first way is to get rid of the water, build the tunnel, and then let the water back in. We don't have any strong archaeological evidence, but there are descriptions of such a pedestrian tunnel built under the Euphrates River around 2000 BC. Supposedly they dammed the river, built the tunnel out of brick, covered the tunnel with pitch, and then let the water back over the top. This type of cut-and-cover technique is very common for building shallow tunnels on land, but it doesn't happen much for underwater tunnels, because you have to actually get rid of all the water in order to build the tunnel. The second way is to make an underwater tunnel above water and then sink it. So you construct the tunnel in sections above ground, and then you just let each of those sections go down to the bottom. The multiple sections are then sealed together by divers, and you use pumps to get rid of the water. A tunnel made in this way can be put into a trench at the bottom of the waterway, but it can also be held or floated above the very bottom. The third type of tunnel, and this might be the one that you're thinking of when you think about underwater tunnels, goes not just underwater, but underground underwater. Early versions of such tunnels were dug by hand back in the 19th century. Probably the first successful one was the Thames Tunnel by Mark and Isambard Kingdom Brunel. This tunnel took almost 20 years to complete. They dug shafts at each end, and then they used a specially designed wall called a tunnelling shield to progressively dig and line the tunnel. The tunnel flooded several times during construction, including one accident that killed six men. But once complete, it's proved very safe. It's still in use as a train tunnel today. It's part of the London Overground Railway network. Now, most of these types of tunnels today, of course, aren't dug by hand. We use giant boring machines. All three types of tunnel have roughly the same major hazards. There can be a structural flaw in the tunnel itself. There can be something from outside that damages the tunnel. Or can, there can be a fire on the inside of the tunnel which damages the tunnel. Structural flaws tend to get revealed while the tunnels are being built. Like bridges, 
Tunnels are under greater stress during construction, not when they're finished. Once they're finished, they're actually very solid. Underwater tunnels may leak a little, but not enough to be dangerous. The worst case I can find was actually a burst water main inside a tunnel. In 2009, part of the space under the roadway in the Hamden Roads crossing was flooded. This caused puddles on the road and caused the tunnel to be closed, but I don't think a burst water main really counts as a flooded tunnel. The worst case of damage from the outside was back in World War II during the Blitz. There was a disused loop of the London Underground under the Thames. It got hit by a bomb and flooded and they had to pump it back out again. Since the tunnel was already abandoned and the damage was from a bomb during a war, I think we can probably discount this event as an accident as well. Uh, the other type of outside damage you get is getting hit by ships. The Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel has been hit by ships a few times, but that's never flooded the tunnels. It tends to be worse for the ships than it is for the tunnel. In terms of fires on the inside, the worst case I can find is the Channel Tunnel Fire of 1996. Two security guards reported that they'd spotted a fire under a lorry on the heavy goods vehicle shuttle train that runs through the channel. By the time the report was received, the train was already a minute into the tunnel. And the way they planned things at the time, they decided to let the train continue through the tunnel rather than stop it in the middle and deal with the fire at the far end. Unfortunately, the fire spread just a bit too quickly and so the train had to stop partway through the tunnel. The passengers and crew were successfully evacuated and treated, but the fire caused considerable damage to the tunnel. The tunnel is lined with around 40 centimetres of reinforced concrete lining, and this was reduced in some places to just two centimetres. Now, that sounds a bit scary, but even if the concrete had been completely destroyed, that doesn't mean the tunnel itself would have been in danger of collapse. Still, the authorities took that one pretty seriously and they put in place special reinforcing until the tunnel lining was repaired. And that's actually about it. As far as I can tell, no underwater train or road tunnel has ever been seriously flooded, not even as a result of an internal fire. I don't know about you, but I found that pretty remarkable. If you can think of any examples or near examples that I haven't mentioned, please write in to feedback at disastercast.co.uk. I'd really like to know if I've missed anything, because it's a pretty extraordinary claim. So why do you think this type of accident doesn't exist? Maybe it's because there aren't that many underwater tunnels. Have we just got lucky so far? Will I have to revisit this episode in a year along with a reminder of how disasters are disasters precisely because they're unthinkable? I suspect not. There may not have been that many underwater tunnels, but there are a heck of a lot of tunnels in the world, and there are hardly any tunnel collapse disasters either. Like any massive building project, people die while they're constructing tunnels, but the tunnel disasters almost all involve collisions and fires. And even the fires almost always start on a vehicle rather than in the tunnel itself. I think the real answer has to do with safety margins. We've been having a running argument at the Safety Science Innovation Lab where I work 
about whether all accidents are complex or only some accidents. The prevailing opinion seems to be that every accident involves complex causes. Some accidents look simple, but that's usually just because we've accepted all of the complex causes as if they're normal. An oil rig exploding seems complex. Someone falling off a ladder seems simple. But once you ask why they were up the ladder and don't accept that as normal, the accident becomes complex again. Tunnels, on the other hand, are not complex. A project to build a tunnel might be complex. Operating a tunnel might be complex. The organisations who design and build and run the tunnel may be complex. But the tunnel itself is not. The structure, forces, materials and design of a tunnel are very well understood, and they're amenable to precise analysis. If you've got any doubt at all about whether a tunnel is strong enough, you can make it stronger. If there's any doubt about whether the tunnel is waterproof, you can make it more waterproof. That's a very rare luxury in safety, knowing exactly which direction to move in to make things safer. If safety is a clear direction, then the only problem you have is working out how much safety is reasonable. And when it comes to tunnels, society is usually pretty happy to pay for a lot of safety. In fact, they're usually willing to put a lot more effort into the safety of the tunnel than they are to the safety of the things that go through the tunnels. Which brings us to the rest of the episode. This is, after all, Disastercast. There's no way we were going to make it through the episode with it out at least one story about tragedy. I have two for you today. This first story is short because I don't have a lot of information about it. I've got several places that refer to the story, but they all crib from much the same sources. The story happened back in 1944, just before the end of the war in Europe. Naples, a city with one million inhabitants, was occupied by the Allies, and every Thursday night, train 8017 would head up through the mountains towards Lusania, crammed with black marketeers. The marketeers would fill up their bags with food goodies to bring back to Naples, which they would sell to the hungry population and to the occupying soldiers. Now, do you know the story of the little engine that could? All of the bigger engines refused to pull a train up a hill but one little engine kept saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, all the way up to the top of the hill. It's a story concealing an important truth. Trains are actually very bad at going up hills. Even under ideal circumstances, a slope of 3 or 4% can be just way too much for a train to ascend without a running start. The wheels start slipping, and more power just spins the wheels rather than moving the train. Curves make things worse, as do tunnels. Curves slow down the train, reducing its forward momentum, and tunnels reduce the quality of the air to the train, so the train loses power. Train 8017 was overloaded, climbing a steep, twisting railway through a long tunnel. It was cold, and there was ice on the rails, making them even more slippery. Oh, and remember, this was near the end of World War II, so high-quality coal was hard to find. The train was overloaded, underpowered, on a climbing, twisty, icy track through a tunnel. It stopped, and over 500 crew and passengers died in the dark. That's all there is to the story. 
When the wheels started slipping, the train was stuck in a smoky tunnel, filling the tunnel up with incompletely combusted coal smoke. Within seconds, the carbon monoxide had choked the engines, and within minutes, it had killed nearly everyone on board. Next time you're descending a steep tunnel down under a river, don't be afraid of the water. If you can't see the water, it probably can't kill you. And there are worse things to have in your lungs than water. That story is sometimes called the Balvono train disaster, or just the Black Market Express. It's one of the worst train disasters ever, and the train didn't even derail or crash. The second story for today is much more recent. It's called the Montblanc Tunnel Fire, and it happened in 1999. The Montblanc is a single bore tunnel. That's important for understanding the accident. A lot of modern tunnels are dug as dual bore, which means there are totally separate tunnels through the ground in each direction. The twin tunnels get connected by passageways that are kept sealed, except when they're needed to evacuate people. In an emergency, everyone can be evacuated from one tunnel into the other tunnel, where they're completely protected from fire, and they've got access to fresh air and safe transport. Emergency vehicles can also use the second tunnel to quickly and safely get to the point of a fire or an accident. Some tunnels today are even triple war, with a dedicated service and emergency road. Montblanc, as I said, was single bore. There were stopping areas every 300 metres, and every second stopping area had a fire shelter. There's no such thing as fireproof, though. These shelters are inside the same tunnel, and fire resistance is always relative. A truck carrying flour and margarine caught fire. Um, we don't know exactly when it caught fire. It was probably either shortly before or shortly after it entered the tunnel. The driver had no way of knowing that his own truck was on fire, and so trucks coming the other way were flashing their lights at him to tell him that he had a problem. He eventually stopped halfway along the 11.6 kilometre tunnel, and he abandoned his truck, which was a good move, because it was now a giant blazing bomb. Nine tonnes of margarine, 12 tonnes of flour, 550 litres of diesel fuel, and there were cure vehicles waiting just behind to add to the blaze. It took six minutes from the time the truck entered the tunnel to when the fire was officially detected, and a further two minutes to close the tunnel. So that's eight minutes, which may seem like a pretty quick reaction time, but remember that once there's a fire, there's no way through the tunnel, it's blocked. Every vehicle that went in during that eight minutes was another set of passengers that ultimately needed to be rescued, and every vehicle was also another fuel load heading straight for the fire. It didn't help that the breeze was blowing in the opposite direction to the way the truck on fire was travelling, so the flames and smoke were being blown directly to all of the vehicles stuck behind the truck, and there was no way to turn around the breeze direction, the fans weren't strong enough for that. So people who stayed in their vehicles were burned. People who left their vehicles and made a run for it were overcome by smoke. Two fire trucks raced into the tunnel, where their engines conked out because there was insufficient oxygen. And so then we had fire trucks waiting to add to the blaze, and firefighters trapped in the fire shelters waiting for rescue. Eventually the fire burned for two days. It consumed 23 trucks, 10 passenger vehicles, two fire trucks, and one motorcycle. A quick word about the motorcycle. 
It belonged to an Italian security guard, Mr. Tanazi. His job was to ride up and down the tunnel, checking that everything was okay, calling tow trucks, and keeping the traffic flowing. He was on his break when the fire started. He grabbed breathing gear and rode down into the tunnel, telling everyone to keep low and close to the wall, where the ventilation ducts would give them at least a bit of fresh air. He went into the tunnel five times and saved at least ten people on the back of his motorbike. On his last trip, he found a French truck driver who was unconscious and too heavy to get onto the bike. Tanazi dragged him into a fire shelter and closed the door. Unfortunately, the fire shelter was rated for two hours, not two days. On the last episode of DisasterCast, I forgot to thank my Patreon subscribers. I'm very sorry about that. A special, special thank you to top patrons Hunter, David, Daniel, Bob and Patrick. Thank you to new patrons James, Tim, other James and Des. And a shout out to long-standing patron John. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com disastercast. It pays the server bills and it makes me feel loved. Thank you also to everyone who's been plugging the return of the show on LinkedIn, Twitter, and any other social media where I may have missed mentions. I have some ideas queued up for the next few episodes, but suggestions and comments are always welcome. You can write to me at feedback at disastercast.co.uk or reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. If you'd like to read ahead, the accidents I'll be dealing with in the near future are flight TE-901, also known as the Erebus crash, and the capsize of the HMS captain. If you have an opinion about either of these, feel free to drop me a line with your thoughts or suggestions. Till next time, keep safe.